This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement 2016, coming to Chicago in July. Stick around for more information on how you can be part of Podcast Movement 2016. You're listening to the Podcast Movement Sessions. What's a podcast again? A podcast is... uh, uh, You talk? Is this thing on? Podcast... The woman was attacked by an owl. I'm Brian Orr. I'm Jared Easley. And this episode of Podcast Movement Sessions features Phoebe Judge and Lauren Sporer, the producers of the highly acclaimed Criminal Podcast. Well, I'll, I'll say this about Phoebe Judge. I, I listen to Criminal. I love that show. I've listened to pretty much every episode. When I first met her, she was backstage at the Academy of Podcaster Awards because her and Lauren were going to do the introduction for whatever award that they were doing that for. I don't remember which one it was. But she was backstage, and I had not met her yet. I had not seen her in person. So when she came up to me, and I had my clipboard and you know my fancy little headset on because I'm backstage and I'm having communication with Dan and a couple other people while the show's going on. Uh, she sticks out her hand and she says, "Hi, I'm Phoebe Judge." And I was like, as soon as I heard that voice, it was just like the podcast, and it was like again one of those cheesy fanboy moments. It was like, "Oh, hi, you know, hello, <laughs> thank you for being here. I love your show." And I'm like, "All right, stop being an idiot, you know, like get it together." But it was just kind of neat, you know, to hear her. and She's standing there shaking my hand. She said it just like she says on the podcast. It was pretty cool. I introduced myself at the stockyards. And so I, I walk up to, to her and Lauren and, and, you know, say hi and whatever. And, and so I'm talking to, talking to Lauren. And then I, you know, introduce myself to Phoebe. And I said, are you having a nice time? And, and Phoebe says, uh, yes, one of my lifetime goals was to ride on a mechanical bull. And I feel like I did pretty well. <laughs> I'm just, she's just using the Phoebe Judge voice talking yes. about riding the mechanical bull. Uh, no, that, that's great to hear that she did that. I didn't know she did that. In many ways, Criminal represents everything that's right about podcasting. It was started with no budget, in a closet. But Lauren and Phoebe have managed to create something that is both a masterful example of narrative audio, as well as being journalistically appropriate and true. We launched Criminal in January of 2014. Uh, We funded the show out of our pocket. We recorded the show in a closet. All of us had full-time jobs. I still have a full-time job. We started with the idea that even if only three people listened, we would be really serious about this thing. And so we had a logo and we we were very formal about it. I think probably three people did listen for the first couple of months. In January of 2015, we joined Radiotopia uh, which, when we got that call in October, I mean, we really did. We would last, you know, we were two months into the show, and we thought, what if we could have anything for criminal? What would happen? And we would say, well, Radiotopia would call us. And then they did. And so we were so thrilled about that. And while Phoebe never actually complained about working out of a closet that I'm aware of, at least, she certainly is happy about the new Radiotopia era of her podcasting journey. It's a mic booth that has a chair. And that really, to me, there's a light and a chair that doesn't, and the light doesn't hum. And that feels like Versailles to me. I mean, that's, that's all I need. That's, that's, that's such a step up. Today, what we'd like to do is break down one episode of Criminal, talk about the choices that we made in making 
the show and um, yeah two things I want to say about our show in case you're not familiar with it one is that we're a written show so our production process is weeks with many rounds of edits and I know that that's maybe not the case for everyone so I just wanted to say that in case you're not familiar with our show and the other thing is that our show is a little bit more formal and that's on purpose I think um, because Phoebe in real life is kind of a formal person yesterday she asked me if I was going to do my hairdo and <laughs> she said <laughs> on the phone with her father she described a drunk person as half in the bag Criminal is very journalistic, and the tone of it is very serious and reverent, which I think is appropriate for the gravity of the stories that you cover. Was that something that you and Phoebe did intentionally, or does that just reflect your natural personalities? That is truly her natural personality. I mean, she, like in real life, she jokes around a lot, but she's not sort of a zany woman. And also, I think that was part of the design of the show was, you know, we were thinking we can, we're going to do this in sort of a respectful, formal way. A lot of the podcasts I was listening to were more conversational. And, and we thought, you know, we, were we both, Phoebe and I both have worked in public radio for a long time, which is pretty formal. So I think we thought we're going to take what we know how to do and we're going to apply it to this subject matter. And if people think it's too stiff and formal, you know, like, so be it. Like, we were really just sort of making it for ourselves at the beginning. It's been really gratifying that people sort of, like, accept the show on its own terms and don't compare it to more um, sort of freewheeling conversational shows. Criminal's not about me as the host. Uh, this isn't about Phoebe's stories or my job is to relay information to the listener in as concise and unbiased and clear way as possible. That's it. And so I think from the beginning, we've wanted to have a show that kind of matched a, kind of a formal tone because a lot of times we're talking about issues that are very serious and, um, and certainly not about me. And so that's been pretty clear that we do have a hosted show, a scripted show, but if I can get out of there as much as possible, it's not always, sometimes I laugh and we leave that in, but a lot of times it's just say, say what needs to be said and then uh, disappear. This is one of those episodes where we really tried to do that, really, really tried to get me out of there. Uh, so our show also is interview. I've, I like to talk to people and ask questions. It's what I've wanted to do since I was a little girl. It's all I ever care to do is ask people questions about anything. And so we've left some of that in criminal, the interview, the back and forth that I do with people. This episode is called 695 BGK. It came out, it was our 18th episode. It came out in April. And we're going to start by just playing the beginning of the episode. This is how the episode starts. Again tonight, I was patrolling the area around the supermarket, right around my windows down, and I saw a black SUV driving a little erratically. This is police officer John Edwards speaking with investigators in the early morning hours of December 31st, 2008. Edwards was a police officer in Bel Air, Texas, right outside of Houston. And I stopped at the end of the street and watched the vehicle for a minute as it parked in front of a residence. Two males got out, and they observed me looking at them, looking back at my vehicle. As I passed the vehicle, I ran the plate, and it returned as a stolen vehicle. Stolen vehicle. Confirm tag. Six, nine. We're listening to what Officer Edwards heard, indicating that the SUV was stolen. Warning. Potential hit. The two young men, both African-American, were now out of the car and walking up the driveway towards the house. Edwards called for backup and got out of his car. As soon as I exited the vehicle, that said, stop, please, let me see your hands. And both of them began saying, it's the police, why are you messing with us? And it's just a lot of profanities, a lot of 
basically they, they didn't think I should be here in the first place. And I, I told them I've got a stolen hit. I said that the vehicle turns to be stolen. They're driving a stolen vehicle. Did you have your gun out at this point? Yes, sir. As soon as I exited the vehicle, I had my gun out. Officer Edwards ordered both men to get down on the ground. That's when the front door opened, and Marion and Bobby Tolan saw their son face down on the front porch. A second officer arrived on the scene, Sergeant Jeffrey Cotton, and he tried to move Marion Tolan towards the garage. Here's Sergeant Cotton speaking to investigators. I'm trying to move her. She's resisting. She's not really cooperating. I take both hands and start to move her toward the garage. She turns around, says something to the effect, and I don't remember exactly what a word was, but something to the effect of, get your hands off me. It may have been some profanity as well. I look back to her to keep moving her forward, and I hear him start to yell. I look. He gets up and starts. He may have taken a step toward me, uh, and he's yelling, get your hands off her. He's got his hand like he's digging in his waistband. At this point, I'm thinking, I can't believe this guy is really, you know, he's, that he's really got a weapon. I can't. And I see that he's standing up. I start yelling, stop. At this point, I pushed her, drew my weapon, and I'm backing up. You know, at this point, he's facing, and, and his arm's coming up. So I fired twice. The suspect fell backward and rolled back onto his stomach again. The female here was was screaming. I held for a minute until I felt like I could approach him. He was no longer acting threatening. Now he's just kind of laying on the ground, moaning. When you did approach the suspect, after you had fired your round, you did approach the suspect. Um, you checking for any weapons at that point? Yes, I did. I checked his waistband, his pockets, underneath him, uh, and I did not find a weapon. Sergeant Cotton shot 23-year-old Robbie Tolan in the chest at close range. Cotton said that night and repeatedly since that he shot Robbie Tolan in self-defense. When he came up, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I can't believe this guy's you know, pulling a weapon. I mean, he's coming up and I'm thinking, don't do it, don't do it. And he's still coming and he's reaching for his waistband. And, you know, I, I mean, I've got a wife and five kids. So... That's hard to hear, but what he said is that he has a wife and five kids. Lately, we've been hearing a lot about police officers shooting unarmed black men, allegedly in self-defense. But one thing makes the Tolan story different from those we've seen in the news lately. It felt like a sharp pain at first, and then it actually hit me. It literally feels like, you know, an elephant is standing on your chest. That's the only way I can really describe it. Robbie Tolan is still alive. Not only did he survive the shooting, but he didn't even pass out. And when he tells the story, the shooting did not happen the way the officers say it did. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Okay, so there's a couple things that we want to talk about and I think that are demonstrated there and that are super important to us and we really work toward. One thing is that we have competing narratives there. So we have the, the police officer's version of events and then we're indicating that the family story is different, right? So that gives us a problem right at the beginning of the story and it gives the listener something to do, right? The listener's actively engaged because we don't know the answer, right? We have two competing stories, two competing narratives. Yeah, and as a narrator, what we wanted to do is, in the best way possible, lay out 
both sides of the story. Laying out both sides of the story is good because you cover all your bases, but it also can be a little bit boring. And that's something that we try to, to mess around with a lot in Criminal, this idea of surprise. Yeah, so we'd written the first draft from the point of view of the family, and then we said, this isn't good enough. How do we make this more interesting? Um, and so we changed it and decided to start with the version of events from the police officer's point of view. Because we started with the officers, we were able to, to withhold the fact that Robbie Tolan survived the shooting. So for us, that moment where you hear Robbie's voice is a very emotional and surprising moment, and that's something that we were hoping we could see throughout the entire episode. And when I, when I think about how this works, I think a lot about something that the fiction writer George Saunders said. In an essay, he talks about... Um, a kid's toy, a Hot Wheels track. And, you know, there's these toy gas stations in a Hot Wheels track, and if you drive the toy car into the gas station, it zooms the car forward and around the track. So he says that a story can be a series of these little gas stations. A story is made up of little things that fling our car forward. And so when we're structuring an episode, we think a lot about this. Like, how can we continue to raise the stakes? How can we bring energy to different parts throughout the story? And a lot of that comes by withholding information and then deploying it at exactly the right moment. Black Friday. That bastion of American capitalism. That beautiful favorite holiday where we get to trample each other in department stores. Not me, I only buy stuff on Amazon. So, Cyber Monday for me, people. Anyway, Black Friday. Tickets go on sale for Podcast Movement 2016 in Chicago. Podcast Movement 2016 is going to have literally 100-plus amazing speakers, including WNYC's Anna Sale of Death, Sex, and Money, and many, many more. And, of course, I'll be there, so there's that. Anyway, Podcast Movement 2016. Get your tickets. Black Friday. Podcastmovement.com. We tried and tried and tried to get the police officers to talk to us. We talked to them, and they said, no, thank you, we won't speak with you. So the only thing that we could use is, is those tapes, because that's, he was interviewed right after the shooting, and that's really what he said. So we were very lucky to get those tapes. I also don't know if we would have done the story if we'd had no talk from the other side, because then it would have just been like hearsay. Um, and that's one risky thing with a type of show like ours. We have to cover it. We have to make sure we're, we're straight on everything. So the tapes really, I think, made us able, we were able to do the episode because of this stuff. So the next thing that we hear in the story is, so we've had five, that was five minutes, four minutes of, of what the cops say happened. And then we get to hear what the family says happened. And we've already kind of said to you, this is going to be a little bit different. So, uh, oh, this is a Marion Tolan. This is Bobby Tolan. That's Bobby Tolan. This is his mother. Then I heard a voice behind me say, get against the garage. And I turned around and I saw there was another police officer behind me. And he said, get, I said, are you kidding me? He grabbed me by the arm and he threw me against the garage door. And he grabbed me so tightly, I had bruises on my arm. And and it was a metal garage door, so it made a just horrific sound. And it really startled Robbie, I'm certain. And so Robbie, you know, pushed himself up on his knees to the right, because we were to Robbie's right. And he said, get your hands off my mom. He didn't say it that nicely. I said, get your f***ing hands off my mom. And he didn't say a word. He, he, he just looked and pulled his gun and shot me. 
So um, that's basically, that's a very short, but that's basically what they say happened. We flew to Houston to do the story so much of the time. We're in studios. I'm talking to people over ISDN, tape things, nutty situations. We set up with me in the car, and we only pay for one side of it so that we can do it on the cheap. It's not cheap to fly to Houston, but we were doing three or four interviews. And so when you're doing three or four interviews, it's actually kind of cheaper to go. And um, so we went there. One of the things that you can do is you can knock out a lot of tape, but you can also do this. And this is something that I love to do more than anything, which is to just like get in a car and ride along with someone. It's kind of a cliche, it's a, we use this trick a lot, but the, what Marion Tolan's gonna describe now is something that I could have written, that I could have told you about, but I think her describing the actual scene um, was really pretty important. So here she is. This is the house right here. Anthony was laying like this way in front of the door. Robbie was laying in front of that flower box. On the grass. On the ground, uh-uh. On the concrete, at the door. Robbie was at the door. He was at the door. And he shot him from right there. Robbie so was right you there. Were, you were three feet away from him being shot. Yeah, maybe five feet, but I wasn't, I mean, I was right there. I was right there, the gun was right in my face and I saw the fire from the gun. <clears throat> so. Hearing her and kind of her, see, hearing her, like her immediacy in that and pointing, we really wanted to leave in and taking us to the scene. Um, it also helped us. It also helped us as people trying to report the story to really get a physical sense of, oh, okay, I see what you're saying, what, what you mean when you're saying I was on, you know. It also is like your son actually was on your front step when he was shot in front of your face. You know, to see that was also pretty important. So. Now we spent five minutes kind of on the officer's version, five minutes on Marion Tolan, and now we thought, okay, we're, we're ready for another little surprise. The Tolans weren't allowed to go to Robbie. Bobby Tolan was put into the back of one police car. Marion Tolan was put into the backseat of another. They couldn't get out, and they were screaming. Officer Edwards, the first officer on the scene, began to look into the matter of the stolen car. He typed Robbie's license plate number into his computer again. And this is when he realized he'd made a mistake. Robbie's plate was 695BGK. Officer Edwards had typed in 696BGK. He got it wrong by one digit. Okay, so that's a really important part of the story, and we held it back for 10 minutes. And we did that on purpose. Yeah, so that was another surprise, just, you know, another way. And I think we use the word surprise, but it's really just to hook the listener more, to say, you know, listen, you should be caring about the story because, you know, these are the things that, the little things that when you're telling a story to your pal after you listen to it, you say, these are the things you start with. This is why it was so crazy, because he was shot on his front step, because the lights plate was one digit. So we put that surprise in. A lot of people ask us how we find our stories. That's pretty much the only question. We get that question a lot. And for us, for criminal, um, the story has to be good and the character has to be good. But for us, there has to be something that's a little bit, uh, a little bit different, a little bit complicated, something that it's we confusing. want to just confusing that skirts the line of right and wrong. And so this did that for us. Our latest episode is about um, petrified wood theft being stolen in Arizona at a national park, which is interesting, I guess. But then we find out that people are stealing the wood, but then they're sending it back because they feel so guilty. So, you know, that, that to us was the twist that made us want to do the Petrified Wood story. And our first our episode first ever... first episode was about... It was a man who'd been convicted of his wife's murder, but this lawyer is completely adamant that, in fact, 
the, the woman was attacked by an owl, um, and that that's what precipitated her death, and he staked his career on it. He's deadly serious, and he has a lot of evidence that's actually quite compelling, so when, by the time you get to the end of the episode, you're like, huh. Who knows? Who knows? Um, <laughs> but, but, but even the fact, like, that's a crazy, a nutty idea. An owl did this. But for one, if we can put in your head for one little second that, oh, yeah, maybe an owl did do it, it's enough for us. You don't have to believe it, but just for one second to create that little bit of doubt. So from here, we learn that the officer was not guilty verdict. Then we, Officer Cotton, we learn that the family had to sell their house because Marion Tolan would not back down and was going to push this and push this and appeal it and appeal it. Then we find out that they get all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, no, 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 to the circuit court, you need to look at this case again. Something doesn't seem right. Um, so that's another surprise that it got away Supreme Court. Then we learned that the bullet, it was unsafe to remove the bullet from Robbie Tolan's body, um, so it's still in his liver. So we learned that at the, near the very end of the story. That he's walking around with this bullet in his liver still. Um, and we left in this quote, which I don't think we need to say anything about, rather than Robbie Tolan's father, who we also interviewed, said, my son, something like my son, has to walk around every day knowing that he's got these, a little piece of cotton in him, which is, take of it what you will, interesting for so many reasons. You know, we're talking about a white police officer, and that's what the father said to us, a little piece of cotton still in him. And then, at the end of the story, and we always like to do this if we can, this was the last thing you hear in the whole entire episode. As for what the police say, we reached out to Sergeant Cotton for this story, but he told us in an email that he can't comment on pending litigation. We got the same response from everyone we contacted at the Bel Air Police Department. Sergeant Cotton still works there. In the years since the shooting, he's been promoted to lieutenant. So I think you can get a sense probably of, of what, we're, what excites us. And I think we're really looking to surprise ourselves. And I think that if material in a first edit isn't very complicated for us and isn't compelling and doesn't keep sort of raising the stakes on itself, we're going to cut it from the episode. And that's why our episodes are so short. Um, our first draft of our episodes is usually about 35 minutes. If someone takes the lead on writing the script, we have the edit, there's a lot of yelling, it's contentious, it's three hours long, we get into a fight, one of us walks away, we come back, and then we say, okay, let's do a second draft. So it's a pretty long process. That 35-minute script usually goes down, I would say our average length is about 17 minutes for our episodes. And so we are constantly just getting stuff out of there. Because I think that if you get all the junk out of there, then these surprising things really stick out. So that's what we're always trying to do, is get the things shorter. And yeah, like, how can we make, is, is this a cliche? Like, is this a familiar story structure? As a listener, do I know where this is going, right? Like, that's what we don't want. For me, it doesn't take a lot for me to switch over to the top 40 station and listen to Katy Perry. Like, I feel like this, like, you know, the, the bar is high for my attention span, and we're, I think we're all pretty saturated, so we're, we're really, really, really tough on ourselves, you know, like... Is this oh, genuinely first, compelling? The first uh, episode we ever did, this is the first time we confronted this, Lauren wanted to make about the owls. She wanted to make a guilty peaks, what, twin peaks? Guilty peaks. I don't know what's going on. A, 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 a twin, a twin, twin peaks a, reference. 
So it was about owls, and I was like, let's put in this tape from Twin Peaks where they say like the owls are not what they seem, right? So it was like a, I think she was this would so, be a, she I mean, was so into this, and I thought, why in the world would we do that? You know, it is. I understand it would get a little laugh from I guess three percent of the listeners, but um, uh, but and she was so angry. But we're always doing that to each other. It's like Lauren, I know this is really funny to you, but um, so we're always just trying to get it really, really lean in criminal. Um, just so people lean closer. I think it's important for us to realize that when you're pursuing really high-level work, stuff that really makes a difference, it's not easy. And it's not always easy emotionally. In this next little section, Phoebe is talking about some interaction that she had with Lauren and her former producer, Eric Mennel, who's now with Gimlet and the Startup Podcast. And she's talking about some kind of testy interactions that she had with them, and it's really pretty funny. This happened the other night. We were we were tracking and Lauren and Eric mostly both of them listened to me track and Eric rightfully so is saying Phoebe you need to, you need to please try please try to change the way that you're starting the sentence because you're starting every single sentence the same way Webb sat Webb sat down with the files from the case Webb sat down with the files from the case, and he says he found some inconsistencies. First off, the alleged fifth man in the ring, the man the police thought was Tommy, supposedly changed his cell phone number every 90 days. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and then Lauren said, and can you also, on the last word of this sentence, and I lost it. But but Eric, here's what I'm trying, okay, I understand I can't say days like you're telling I hear you saying that up and down. I'm saying I don't. That's like I can't I'm not I can't say that days days. I don't know what you're talking about. So you're saying these things to me and I don't know what you're talking about. I'm trying to say days like days like I don't know what that is. I lost it. I started yelling into the microphone. I'm sorry, but my voice just doesn't work that way. You try to tell me how your voice. I just went crazy. But that's not how I talk. Like, right? Like, that. I would never say that in real life. I would be like, days. I would never, that's not, like, natural, right? Webb sat down with, I, I, I'm coming back to this. I want to move on. I'll come back to this. This isn't helpful for me. And then I, and then I stopped myself and I said, Phoebe, calm down and shut up. You know, these are people who know and appreciate and, and, want the show to sound as best as possible. And if that's pushing me, then, you know, we'll, we'll try to work that out. Come on, isn't that a great piece of audio? I just love that because it exemplifies everything that you go through when you're wanting to make something that's amazing. And honestly, a lot of what I'm going through right now in making this episode. And I, I really want to thank Rob Rosenthal for that clip. That's original tape from his podcast, How Sound, and he graciously allowed me to use that clip. And anyone who's interested in producing really high-quality audio content needs to be listening to How Sound. We always send the final um, episode to the guests, like, the night before it goes up. And But we, but we shouldn't say, I mean, they don't, they don't get to say anything, really. I mean, oh, no. It's like, still going to go up whether they like it or not. Like, yeah, usually... I, I send it to them the same time I publish. Um, and then I'm just like on the edge of my seat waiting to hear back from them. And when they're moved by the way that we've constructed their life story, and often it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them, that is very important and I think very... Yeah, and we, um, we take that so seriously. We take the fact that these stories that we're telling are oftentimes about the worst thing that's ever happened to someone, um, murders and death and everything else. And our responsibility is to 
be so true to that and to be, it's not about being kind, it's about having a, some sort of, I think, reverence for the story that you're being allowed to tell. So all of these tricks that we're talking about, surprises and things, they all have to, they all have to be, feel right. I mean, we're not going to do anything that, that would make someone say, well, wait, no, 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 that's not, that's not fair. Our, our goal is to be fair, as fair as we possibly can. So fair and make a good story that someone wants to listen to is this battle that we're, that's what we're, that's what we're fighting with each other about all the time in making these criminal stories. How do you take this sometimes very intense material and make it compelling to the listener and also make it fair and respectful to the person that has allowed you to tell their story? What is it like to talk to a stranger about something that's very emotional and painful for them? This is like one of her great talents. Like, and the more we work together on this show, the more clear that is to me. Like, I grew up in the South with like a certain, with certain manners and a certain sort of people pleasing approach to conversation, and she doesn't have that. And so it's like very, she 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 will ask anyone anything, and and when it's sad, she has this knack for being sort of like gentle and intuitive, but also like really representing the listener and just saying what's on her mind. And it's it's sort of amazing to watch her do that. And sometimes she'll ask a question like, there was one episode. Um, about romance scams where the woman had been sort of tricked by a man she met online and she was very heartbroken and, and we spoke to her very quickly on the heels of this whole incident sort of resolving and the woman was talking and Phoebe said you must have felt like a fool I and, remember that yeah and when Phoebe said it like my heart stopped and the woman was like I did feel like a fool and the woman just completely opened up into this other line of sort of reflection and it was a really beautiful moment. And like, that's the type of thing that like Phoebe can do and that, you know, I certainly can't. Um, and I think it's because Phoebe does, is genuinely having a conversation with someone. I think she genuinely um, like falls into the moment completely when she's talking with, some, with someone. Um, she's not looking at questions. Um, she's really listening to them. So I think she, she doesn't have anything to be afraid of because she's genuinely engaged with them. There's times when I'm so deep in it from a producer's standpoint that I'm not even really like allowing myself to feel the emotion in the story until it's done. And then it, it will be like a week after it's gone out on the feed that I'll listen again. And in addition to just hearing like a ton of problems, <laughs> I, I also then for the first time can sort of like feel the feelings um, in, a, in a more sort of acute way. and. And I think, and, and, and whenever that happens, I always think like, this person was so generous with us. We oftentimes end the episode with just, without drawing great big conclusions. It's not our job to draw a conclusion. Draw your own conclusion. We're just gonna put the information we find relevant out there and uh, let you decide. And if we can do that with a criminal episode, I think we've maybe succeeded. The ending of our episodes are hard for us. It needs to feel like the end of the episode, but it feels super inappropriate to like dramatize something and like make it feel like a swoon, you know? So that's really hard for us. We really struggle with that. And I sent a rough edit of our Petrified Wood episode to my parents, and they were like, it just ends out of nowhere. And I was like, crap. I'm like, now what are we going to do? Like, because it's, we're, we're, it's just our personality. We're just not comfortable with grand summation. The ending is hard for us. And in an ideal story, the story completes itself. And the, the people who, whose story it is can, can reflect in a way that feels meaningful. I think that's, that's the ideal way for us to end the episode. Criminal is so well-written and produced. 
So it's both inspiring to those of us who are doing it ourselves, but then also terrifying to those of us who are new. So what would you say to someone who's in love with the quality that you're producing, but totally overwhelmed by the writing and production? Well, I mean, like, I feel like we're all learning as we go and we're all getting better. Um, Just like anyone who takes on any creative project, you know, like, it's hard for me to listen to some of our early episodes because all I can hear, you know, are the things that I wish we'd done differently. Um, so, I mean, I totally think we're learning on the job. Absolutely. So I'd say just be really patient with yourself. And then the other thing I would say is don't think, don't compare yourself to other shows and don't think about the audience that you would like to have. Like sometimes we teach classes and I very sincerely advise people to think about their very favorite people in the world and make a show for those people rather than trying to appeal to some sort of like neutral mass of listeners. If you set out to to make something that your favorite people might enjoy or might be interested in or would be worth worth their time, I think you'll do great Um, and you'll you'll continue to get better the more you do it. I mean, I always think it's so funny is that the actual making of the podcast is a dream because it's the writing of the script that is just the, the when you pull your hair out you know that's the stuff that that I love it Sheila I guess <laughs> that's the stuff but um, yeah the scripts are the scripts are where we spend just hours and hours so, um, so I think that's it and thank, thank you very much thank you so much, much for coming All right, I guess this episode is half in the bag, or actually fully in the bag. I want to thank you for being here. I want to remind you that we're going to have another episode next Monday, so be here next Monday. And if you want to find out more about Podcast Movement, go to podcastmovement.com. You can also follow Podcast Movement at Podcast Movement on Twitter. Check out the Facebook group on Facebook, Podcast Movement Facebook group. I have been at Brian J. Orr on Twitter, and you can also find me at brianorr.com. I want to give some special thanks uh, John Michael Foreman, Trevor Lorene, Phoebe Judge, Rob Rosenthal for allowing me to use his tape off of the How Sound podcast for this podcast. It was really great, and he just let me steal it, which was very generous. I also want to thank Juan Sepulveda, Kevin Hutchinson, Jared Lane Dan Franks, as always. My mentor through this process was Jeff Emptman. And I want to give special thanks to Lauren Sporer. She's just really generous. She gave me a lot of her time in order to do this episode. And then I was at Third Coast in Chicago, I don't know, a month ago or so. And she literally came across an auditorium just to say hi to me and talk to me and make me feel like I'm part of the cool kid club. And that was really awesome of her. And I also wanted to mention, she mentioned to me in our interview that her and Phoebe are going to be doing a training for the Center for Documentary Studies coming up here. I think you can find that online, so just keep an eye out for that. I also just want to thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for you know being there for the conference. It means a lot. It's a great community, and I'm very thankful for it. Most of all, just thank you for being you, and I'll see you next Monday. Bye.